We're starting into a new series tonight called Theology for Life. And this is going to be our focus for the coming weeks and even months. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through some systematic theology themes. And I'll tell you a little bit more about what I mean by that as I go along tonight. Theology is the study of the nature of God or of religious belief. The word theology comes from two Greek words, one, theos, or God, and then logos, which would be word. The study of theology by many people is considered to be dry and irrelevant and boring and unimportant and all those things. And at the same time, it's one of the most important things we can study because we learn from it some definitive statements about God and who he is in a coherent way so that we can understand it ourselves, but also communicate it to others. And a meaningful relationship with God is dependent on our understanding of who God is. So if we have a wrong understanding of who God is, we're not going to rightly relate to him or be as effective or faithful as we possibly could be. C.S. Lewis said, if you do not listen to theology... That will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ones, bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas. Our premise is this. Everyone is a theologian. You're either a good one or a poor one. Everyone forms thoughts about God. Everyone who thinks about God believes they know something about God And they have a system of theology, however weak or strong it might be. Our goal as Christians, if we're going to grow as disciples, would be that we would know as much about God as we possibly can so that we can draw close to him, grow in our likeness of his character, and then be able to faithfully serve him in the world. I did not know what systematic theology was when I entered into seminary. I'd heard the term, but I started out at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary just going one day a week on Mondays. I would drive about 75 miles from where I lived, and I would spend most of the day at the Orlando Extension Center of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. The first class that I ever took was a systematic theology class taught by Dr. Roger Nicole. Roger Nicole is famous in theological circles as a contemporary of J.I. Packer, of whom you might have heard. He was a Reformed Baptist, a man who deeply loved the Word. He was of French descent. He had two earned PhDs, and I jumped off the high dive into the deep end of the pool when I went into Roger Nicole's class. And I can remember many things that I learned from him in the two classes that I took in the entire year that I studied. But the one thing that still stands out to me about Dr. Nicole is what he said to us as a class. He said, when I enter into heaven, I'll not be Roger Nicole, Ph.D., two times over. He said, I will be Roger Nicole, sinner saved by grace. And that was his heart for teaching theology. He had taught for decades. He was prominent in the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. 
He had written extensively in articles and contributed to books and so forth. His entire library was on reserve at the Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And he was a giant, but yet here he was with tears in his eyes in his early 80s, coming toward the end of a long and storied theological career. And he says, I'll be in heaven as Roger Nicole, sinner saved by grace. And that should be our hard attitude as we approach this whole thing. That theology doesn't make us smarter so that we can out-argue someone or that we can prove our point, although there might be times where we need to prove a point and make our argument. But instead, it should humble us because it grows our vision of the greatness of God. The name Alistair McGrath might ring familiar to you as well. And he said, for anyone interested in doing the right thing, it is necessary to have a set of values concerning human life. Those values are determined by beliefs, and those beliefs are stated as doctrines. Christian doctrine thus provides a fundamental framework for living. But correct doctrine alone is not enough. It is tragically possible to fail to work God's truth out in practical obedience and to only have our heads filled with knowledge. And there are many Christians like that. They've taken every discipleship study. They've read extensively. They can argue on finer theological points and aren't worth a plug nickel when it comes to actually doing something in the kingdom of God and serving faithfully. So I would pray that that would not be you, but that instead you would use what you know, apply it to your own life so that you can be encouraged and you can grow in your relationship with God and so that in turn you can give a good witness to the gospel and to who Jesus Christ is. So we're going to start tonight with the doctrine of Scripture. And I understand that this is a familiar subject to us all, but this is where we want to start to really get our understanding of why we believe what we believe. And I hope to kind of marry the two between our understanding of theology and then how does this play today in real time in the world and why does this have application to us. And I want to start by reading what our statement of faith has to say about the scriptures, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. The doctrine of scripture is communicated to us in terms of revelation, inspiration, and authority. And that's going to be what our pattern is tonight in these few minutes that we have together. Revelation, inspiration, and authority. 
particularly focusing in at the end on authority and the significance of what it means to be in submission to the Word of God. So let's start first with revelation, the doctrine of revelation in Scripture and what that means. The word revelation, not in terms of the book revelation, the apocalypsis, but the word revelation in this context means an unveiling. So we would say that God has unveiled what we know and that God has taken the initiative to make himself known. The 20th century theologian Carl F.H. Henry said, we know what we know about God because God is a self-revelatory God. In other words, God has taken the initiative to reveal himself to us. Divine revelation is the source for theology. So we're not constructing our own theology out here by itself and then imposing that on the scripture. At least we should not be. That's what's happening a lot today in so-called churches. But that's not what we should be doing. We should be building our framework of theology based on revelation that has come from God because God has revealed himself to us. He has uncovered for us what would have otherwise been hidden. Now, admittedly, there are still some things that are the uh, mysterion or the mystery that is greater even than what our human minds have an easy time of understanding because God's ways are higher than our ways. And if we could easily just explain God away, then he would cease to be God, at least in terms of how the scripture presents him. So we're not trying to boil this down to the point that we make God less than he is. We're trying to magnify the revelation, the unveiling, so that we get a better understanding of who God is. So we speak about revelation first in terms of general revelation. Specifically, we talk about nature and God's creation. That's the usual subject of the topic of God's creation. But within God's creation also are people who have been created in his image and history that has unfolded in his time and real things that have taken place that have shown us something about God. And as a result of that, we can know something about him. Because God has revealed himself, he's created, he's generally revealed himself, then through creation we can know him. So I want to look at a couple of passages of scripture, one in the Old Testament and then one in the New Testament. The first is Psalm 19, so you might want to turn there. And here in just a moment... We're also going to consider Romans chapter 1 as well. We'll start with Psalm 19. I love Psalm 19. It's a psalm of worship, a reminder to us of what God has done and how his glory is made known to us. And the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. 
It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. We'll stop there, but you see the clear message is that God proclaims himself through what he has made. And as we've said before, creation is enough to condemn, but it's not enough to convert. And I'll show you what I mean by that over in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, if any passage in all the Bible is a mirror for the days that we live in, Romans chapter 1 is it. Particularly beginning here in verse 18, where the scripture says that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now watch verse 19. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless. And their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. So that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. That there is a higher power, a God, a primary mover, is evident to the eyes. And it's only the eyes and the hearts that have been veiled by sin that cannot see the reality of what God has done. So when we ask the question, how could it be so clear and yet people don't believe? How how could it be so obvious that there's order in the world and that there's a purpose to all of this? How could people not see this? And the reason they can't see it is their hearts are hardened and they're veiled. And the God of this age has blinded their minds to the hope that is in Christ. Now what we need to note here is that God is not nature, but nature reveals God. That's an important distinction because some focus in so much on nature that it becomes what is worshipped. And that's what Paul is obviously recognizing in the culture that he was writing to. And it's a warning to us of what would happen in our day that people would worship the creation rather than the creator And since the fall of man, people have turned knowledge of God into perverse practices and worshiping not him, but images and things that are created. So nature is general revelation. Then we would speak in terms of special revelation. Special revelation 
is the written word, and then preeminently the living word, Jesus Christ. God has made this special revelation known because he is not determined to leave people in their sins. Oh, no. God desires that all men everywhere repent and come to the knowledge of salvation. So it is the heart of God that people would believe in his son and be saved. But the only way they can believe in his son and be saved is if God reveals his son to them. And we would not know of God's saving purpose were it not for the word of God and the son of God revealing that to us. So God used his work among Israel and he impressed on the hearts and the minds of the prophets that there was a promised one to come. That there was a Messiah who was on the way. And then Jesus entered into history in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, at just the right time in history. And I want you to keep turning here in the New Testament over to one of my favorite passages of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 1. And it's a wonderful reminder to us. I quote it often. I refer to it often. But it's a wonderful reminder to us of what God has done in making himself known. And here's what he says, Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at various times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact expression of his nature. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior to the angels just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and let all God's angels worship him. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But to the sun, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak. And they will be changed like clothing, but you are the same. And your years will never end. Now to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? God revealed himself through revelation of his creation, of his word, and of his son. The second way that we would think about this is the inspiration of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture. Now, inspiration means literally God breathed. 
And the passage that I referenced this morning, uh, I, in error, in passing in the first service, you speak enough publicly, you'll say something wrong occasionally. And I said on the fly, not having prepared or thought about it, 1 Timothy chapter 3, second service, I got it right. Some of you probably were here and didn't notice because you weren't listening. But at any rate, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, tells us that God breathed out his word through human instruments. So we would talk about this in terms of verbal plenary inspiration. That's a theological term, but it means that the words are inspired, they're inspired in their entirety, and they are breathed out to us by God. So that God gave the actual words of Scripture, not just an idea, not just a concept, not just a theme, but God gave the actual words through these human instruments of whom he also created them. So we wouldn't think about this in terms of a mechanical dictation. That's not what we're talking about. But we're talking about God having created these people with unique personalities and with distinct writing styles and with unique experiences in life, with particular exposure to his prophets and to his word and led by his spirit. And through a combination of all of these things, the Holy Spirit inspired them to put the words on the pages of Scripture that we now have. So Justin Martyr in the second century called the Bible the very language of God. So when we think about the Bible, we're not just talking about a topic that is about God, but it is something that is from God. Gregory of Nyssa uh, in the fourth century said the Bible is the voice of the Holy Spirit. Now, that was pretty consistent. Uh, It gave rise to trouble during the Middle Ages, which was what, at least in part, the Protestant Reformation was about. Because the Catholic Church had elevated the traditions of men and the statements of the church to be the equivalent with Scripture and to be equally authoritative. They still maintain that as a doctrine today, that the traditions and the uh, writings of the popes and so forth and the official edicts of the church are equally authoritative with the Bible. And, of course, that is unbiblical, and we would not agree with that. So during the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther and others, there were the magisterial reformers as well as the radical reformers, they said, we don't agree with that. This is about ultimately the gospel. This is about the Word of God. And they began to push back against that, and that's why the Reformation took place to begin with. But we saw this take root in a more even insidious way during the 19th century. And you might have heard the term historical criticism or form criticism. And there was a particular school of thinking that arose in Germany among German theologians where they sought to determine the origin of the original message. So basically what they said, at the risk of oversimplifying it, is that the message as we have it is really an outcome of what was formed through the early church and through the opinions and through the experiences of the writers. And they came up with what we have. It was not given by God himself. So therefore, 
We don't know where it came from or what the source was or who the editors might have been. And you go back to things like the Old Testament, the JEDP theory and where they're talking about where did the books of the Pentateuch come from. And you get into the 20th century and there are so-called scholars who are just out and out denying that Moses was even the writer of the majority of the Pentateuch. And it just becomes a train wreck. Classic liberal theology was born out of that. The mainline liberal denominations today that have tanked and have gone off into all sorts of diversion as it relates to theology find their roots in this idea of historical criticism or the idea of form criticism. That every writing in the Old Testament and the New Testament emerged from a particular social and political and cultural environment over the course of centuries. The Bible teaches throughout the Old Testament that the Spirit and the Word are associated. That the breath of God and the voice of God go hand in hand. This comes into view in the New Testament particularly. And I want you to look for a moment over at 2 Peter chapter 1. Just make a right there and let's look over at uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Also a strong, a strong passage about the inspiration of Scripture. find your place there we'll begin reading in verse 16 for we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ instead we were eyewitnesses of his majesty For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed and you will do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns And the morning star rises in your hearts. Now watch verse 20 and 21 particularly. Above all, you know this. No prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, the divine breath or the agent of God's word, is the Holy Spirit. The relationship between the Spirit and the Scriptures is so close that when we say the Holy Spirit says, we should be saying the Scripture says. Now this has important application for today because there's all sorts of tangents of so-called Christianity that blame a lot of weird stuff on God by saying the Holy Spirit told me to do this. The Holy Spirit cannot and will not and would not ever tell you to do anything that is not perfectly consistent with the Word of God. So we need to be cautious about that and not get pulled into that because 
It's a trap in so many people. Well, the Spirit told him to do it, therefore it must be right. Or she said, the Spirit said to do this. It must be right. That's not usually the case. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 13 says, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. We can use the words inspiration and illumination interchangeably. Inspiration is plenary. Plenary means full. That's like the whole deal. This is complete. The activity of the Spirit is not limited to a few texts of the Scripture of which we get to be the judge of which ones those are. It is covering all of the Scripture. And this inspiration is verbal, meaning that God has breathed out words. These are sacred writings. These are words from God that are both holy and human. Now let's think for a moment about some ways that we see divergent thinking on this very issue today and why this is so important. You might have had some more along the way or you might be holding in your hand a red-letter version of the Bible. I remember when I first learned my books of the Bible in the third grade, I was presented with a red King James Bible that was not only red on its cover, but it had the words of Jesus read on the pages of the New Testament. Now, it's interesting to note that the first red-letter New Testament was printed in 1899. It originated with a man by the name of Louis Klopsch, who was the editor of the Christian Herald magazine. He was also a contemporary of D.L. Moody. And when he came up with this red letter version, he had good intentions. He just simply wanted to help people get close to Jesus himself and the words that Jesus had spoken. He was not in his intention saying, The red letters are the only ones you got to pay attention to. He was just saying these are direct quotes from the mouth of Jesus. But today, the words of Jesus are commonly pitted against the words of Paul and against other places in the Bible to say that if Jesus did not explicitly address a particular topic, therefore we don't have to worry about it. An area that is obvious in this regard is human sexuality, where you will be told that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. He never said anything about it. However, Jesus spoke specifically in the Gospels about the order of creation, about the purpose of marriage, about the sanctity of marriage, And nowhere in there does he say anything that would lead us to believe that he would promote anything other than a biblically consistent sexual ethic that was set forth at creation. But yet there are people who say, well, that was Paul who said that, not Jesus. In fact, there's a whole group of people that you might not be aware of that call themselves red-letter Christians. And they are liberal Christians. 
Jim Wallace, who was the founder of Sojourners and who's written extensively on liberal social justice issues. Shane Claiborne, who is famous on media. You've probably seen him somewhere on Facebook. He's an activist. Uh, People like Tony Campolo, who was more popular back in the 80s and has kind of faded from the scene. And these prominent people who call themselves red-letter Christians ultimately promote the idea that morality is subjective. That's the outcome of this. There's no other way to explain it other than we can impose on the Scripture what we want to impose on the Scripture because we pick the Word of God apart, we decide who wrote what, where it came from, whether or not it's authentic, how it was constructed, who the redactors were, who the editors were, and what you end up with is a word that you can't trust at all. And if you cannot trust all of the Word of God, then you cannot trust the Word of God at all. But if you can trust all of it, then it is transformative. It will change your life. It is a take-it-or-leave-it prospect. In fact, I would go so far to say that if I did not believe the entirety of the Bible, I wouldn't fool with any of it. I wouldn't because I would have no idea what I was even following. It's all subjective. It's my opinion. Where did it come from? Is it authoritative? Do I get to pick and choose? Do I get to sit in judgment? And what the enemy has done is he has caused people to think that they're smart enough to pick it apart and only believe what they want to believe. Inspiration has been defined as that direct influence of God on the writers of the Bible by which, while they did not cease to be themselves, they were so moved, guarded, and guided by the Holy Spirit that their resulting productions constitute the Word of God. And then we move last here to the authority of Scripture. Authority is the power or the weight that Scripture possesses because of what it is, namely, a divine revelation given by divine inspiration. Because it is a word that comes to us from God, it has the authority over us. Because we learn about the character and the knowledge and the position of God, That's the weight behind the word. This is not of human construct. This is not make-believe. This is the very word of God. And the reason that the culture doesn't like it is because the culture inherently rebels against authority. We don't like any kind of authority. We don't like parental authority. We don't want marital authority. We don't want political authority. We don't like academic authority. We don't like ecclesiastical authority. We don't like any of it. Because we're rebellious sinners. And we constantly question everything. As a result of that, we end up believing nothing. You're probably familiar with the name Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was an apologist, a defender of the faith in the 20th century. You might have even gone through his study at some point, How Then Shall We Live? Or you might have read some of his books like uh, the, or, or things he's written like The Age of Fragmentation. If you're not familiar with The Age of Fragmentation, I would encourage you to go on YouTube 
and just search the age of fragmentation. And you will see a masterful explanation of how authority has been deconstructed to the point that everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. Because if there are no absolutes by which to judge society, then society becomes absolute. And that's how we can get to the point that we've got the governor of our neighboring state in Virginia who was advocating for what amounts to nothing more than infanticide, people. This is where we are. When there's no basis for authority, there's nothing to which we can hold on to, then you can hold on to whatever you want to or nothing at all. At the end of his life in 1984, at the age of 72, Francis Schaeffer had established himself as the leading Christian spokesman against theological modernism which has now overtaken the ranks of many churches. He spoke against philosophical humanism and political pragmatism and really became the foremost spokesman on behalf of a Christian worldview, kind of popularized this whole idea of a Christian worldview. And he said this, the pessimism of modern man comes from the realization that there is no universal system that can explain everything this is their idea man with himself at the center of the universe cannot explain the world and how it got here or even man and his place in it today knowledge has become relative the relativity of knowledge allows for many perspectives many people can have different views without there being a right or a wrong Many different views are just many different views, concepts, theories, ideas, systems. None are right or wrong. As a man thinks, so is he. We have liberal academics who are promoting it and teaching that God and the supernatural are mythical concepts and natural processes are the ultimate reality. It happens right here in our midst. Existence is said to be temporary and changing And beliefs and ideas are declared to be relative to the age and the culture in which they appear. So humanity promotes personal autonomy and individuality. And human beings are seen as gods of their own destiny. We're seen as free to impose on nature and history whatever moral criteria we prefer. And yet the Bible confronts us. It confronts us with our own spiritual rebellion with the authority of God. And front and center in the Word of God are the character and the will of God and the meaning of human existence and the reality of the spiritual realm that are communicated in a form that we can understand. And this is why the authority of the Bible is so important. Scripture is trustworthy and authoritative because it is divinely inspired. And we're living in a time where we need not only ask the question, Is the Bible true? We need to be asking the question and answering it rightly. Is the Bible sufficient? The answer to both is yes, but the outworking of each is equally as important. Because if the Bible is true, and it's been given to us by God who is authoritative, and we yield ourselves to Him, then it does not matter what the philosophical construct is or the philosophical deconstruction is of the culture that we're living in. The truth of God in His holy character, in His eternal glory, remain. And that provides the foundation for us as Christians. 
where we're not blown to and fro, we're not tossed about with every wind that comes along, but we're anchored firmly in the truth of God and the reality of who he is and what he has done and what he will do in the future. So let me give you some application to this as we close out tonight and launch forward into this new series. First of all, we should study theology with prayer. The scripture says in Psalm 119 and verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So when we come to the word of God, we ought to be praying and asking God to show us what is right and true. And not only show us what is right and true, but to help us use what is right and true and lay it down parallel to what we see in the world, in the things that we're hearing, in the challenges that we're getting to who God is and whether or not he can be trusted or even exist and be able to stand strong. And we should study theology secondly with humility. Because God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Again, I told you earlier on tonight that this is not about winning an argument. This is about knowing the living God. This is about being able to stand for him in the middle of the marketplace and say what is right and true. We should study theology thirdly with reason. God gave us a brain with which to think. Paul would go into the synagogues Acts chapter 17 gives the example of this, and he would reason with them daily from the scriptures. Acts chapter 17 and verse 11 says that the Bereans were of more noble character than those who were in Thessalonica, and they received the message with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And I am concerned that there are many people who are sitting in churches very similar to ours all across even maybe the world. And they are not discerningly asking the question, is what is being taught and promoted and advocated for in this church consistent with the Scripture? You should never have to apologize for asking that question. In fact, you must be asking that question because the same Spirit that indwells me indwells you. And He will not give a contrary witness to Himself. He will give a consistent witness. And you ought to be reasoning and thinking through these things. Majoring on the majors and not majoring on the minors. Then I think we should study theology with the help of teachers. Do we need teachers ultimately? Well, we can stand before God on our own. We don't need a mediator. We don't need a priest. We have standing through the blood of Jesus. But yet God has given as a gift to his church teachers and teachers who are consistent with the word can be very helpful to us in understanding it in fact since i am the primary preacher here and i don't get to listen to a lot of live preaching i listen to a lot of preaching but the most preaching that i listen to other than a handful of people that i like who are in contemporary format I love to listen to classic preaching. I mean, where they're just laying down the fire, man. They're, they're preaching. They're bringing the word. They're teaching it. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. There's unction in the preaching. I love that stuff. And I listen to it all the time. I just leave preaching running all the time. Why? Because I need it. And it helps me understand better what I know. And then we should study theology ultimately as worship. 
Psalm 19 and verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So this is worship. How could anybody say, Doctrine's not all that important? Well, just go ahead and say, Worship's not all that important. It's infinitely important because it's how we know about God. And if we know about God, we're driven to one place. And that place is to a place of worship. And we're in awe of who he is. And we draw closer to him and we imitate Jesus so that our lives would be changed. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we close. God, I'm so grateful tonight for your word. I'm thankful that you have given us a trustworthy record of the things that have been. You've given us instruction on the things that are. And you've given us insight into the things that will yet be. In all of them, may our focus remain on you. Because you can be trusted. And in an age that rebels against authority through the sinful hearts of people. We want to be people who yield to your authority. And as a result of that, walk in the way of righteousness. Bless this week that is in front of us and use it however you see fit, Lord. Encourage us as we walk in the way. And help us to come alongside others who perhaps need a word of encouragement or are not yet walking in the way so that they might know Jesus, the one who is worthy. And we pray it all in his name. Amen. Amen.